There is trouble in the forest, there is unrest in the trees. The maples want more sunlight and the oaks ignore the pleas. Shannon's lumber industry update. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 67. This is about silvicultural systems. Silviculture, it is not just a fancy high point Scrabble word, it's actually a system for maintaining a forest. And if you want to get technical and get you know, a formal definition. If we go to Wikipedia, silviculture is defined as the practice of controlling the growth, composition, structure, and quality of forests to meet values and needs, specifically timber production. Now, I find that a particularly interesting definition to find on a mainstream site like Wikipedia, because I think if you were to ask someone for a more updated definition, the end of that, where it says specifically timber production, would also include a lot of ecological, cultural, and maybe even political production. The idea of silviculture just being geared towards timber production is somewhat antiquated, and I think you can think of that as more of a certainly 20th century, you know, absolutely 19th century, early 20th century, maybe leaving out the last 20 years of the 20th century, but definitely not a 21st century mentality. One of the things about silviculture, this idea of tending to forests in order to maximize their production, that changed dramatically in about the 1980s because we had long, we had a long time to practice silviculture. And we started to discover, if we really just focused on timber production, there were other impacts that we weren't aware of, that weren't you know, immediately uh, recognizable until they'd been going on for decades and decades and decades. And a lot of this is ecological, having to do with other flora and especially the fauna in the region. And then climatology, of course, began to play into this. So silviculture today examines a wide range of things. It's not just timber production. And I wanted to say that right now, like right up front at the beginning of this episode, because I want to address these things throughout today's episode. We're going to talk about the various silvicultural systems at play, what they mean. Some of these terms you may have heard of before, but you may not quite fully understand what it means. But then also look at how these each individual systems have impacts on specific types of trees, specific types of climate, and the ecosystem around them. But you know what? Before I get too carried away, if you can't tell already, I'm excited about this episode. <laughs> I do want to get a little bit of business out of the way. Happy New Year, first of all. It's 2022. Um, got some great emails, Instagram posts, etc. on the last episode, uh, a special customer case study, I think is what I called it. Uh, thanks, everybody, for writing in. I uh, just was a fun idea. Actually, I wrote a blog post based on that idea about 11 years ago on my Jay Gibson McIlvain blog. So while it was an original idea then, it's not an original idea now. I just put it into audio form. So I do appreciate everybody writing in and telling me that they really enjoyed that and it made their holiday season. It was a lot of fun and uh, maybe we learned something along the way. Um, I got uh, an email from Matt on a, a video that uh, Matthias Wendell recently did over on YouTube where he built a, a wood tester, computerized wood tester. And um, Matt was 
kind of shocked at some of the variability in the hardness testing that Matthias came back with. And um, he said, uh, Matt said that he's, he's definitely working with a small sample size, but one thing it highlights for me is the variability of the wood in which we work with. Uh, we can say the Janka hardness of a species is such and such, but in reality, the hardness of the piece you have in your hand could be anywhere in a relatively large range around that number. Similarly, for all the metrics we have, like bending strength, et cetera, et cetera. Have a good day. Thanks for the podcast, Matt. Um, Matt, I wanted to highlight this because you're absolutely right, but the important part to recognize are those test numbers are averages based on very large sample sizes. So you are absolutely going to find a different number. If you if you had a you know a Janka tester and you could drive that half inch steel ball a half inch into the wood in your shop, you could test different parts of the same board and get different numbers. Wood is an organic material. Of course it's going to vary from area to area on the tree. It's going to vary from, you know, the sapwood into the heartwood, of course, but also from it's going to be dramatically harder in, say, the crotch of a tree where you may have more interlocked grain or more ingrain. You're going to be a dramatically different hardness as the figure changes. Um, one tree on the side of the hill can have a different uh, hardness from the tree next to it because of that organic nature. But do recognize that the numbers we have from like the Forest Products Laboratory are averages spread over a large sample size. So they're pretty good ballpark numbers to look at. And the same thing applies with any of those other technical specs you'll look at. Don't treat it as gospel. Um, but then again, aren't these numbers kind of all relative anyway? Because it's not like we can test them on our own shop and go, well, you know, Forest Products Laboratory says walnut has an 860 hardness and the one in my shop is 830. Like, none of us can do that. We don't have our own data points. Well, I guess Matthias may have his own data point now, but it's important to, to, to recognize that, um, yeah, there's going to be differences across all these species and from one tree to the next. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I also got an email from Garrett who said, I was wondering if you could expand on the adoption of blockchain technology to track the sourcing of lumber. You mentioned there's a group of people putting together an initial structure. Is that group or project something you'd be able to share or expand upon? Um, absolutely. Um, the, the group that came to mind that, that sparked that is called Forest Trust. Uh, F-O-R-E-S-T-R-U-S-T. If you look up Forest Trust, you'll see on their website their whole schema for putting together blockchain and how they're um, uh, trying to get more and more people to buy into it. But there's also a white paper that I will uh, link to in the show notes of this that goes into a, a lot of other blockchain schemas that have been put together. For instance, IBAMA, the um, Brazilian forestry ministry, already uses blockchain format for tracking, um, for sourcing lumber in within Brazil uh, and from state to state within Brazil. There are several other entities. I know Accenture has done several studies on this. There's a Canadian blockchain uh, forestry consortium, I think is the official term. All of these are cited in, and show kind of case studies within this white paper. So I will certainly point you to it. Uh, as far as expounding on what they're doing, I would have to know a lot more and understand blockchain a lot better to be able to do that myself. So I will certainly cop out and point you to the white paper. But uh, thanks for asking for clarification. So let's move into this discussion about silviculture. This is a big topic and I'm gonna to touch you know, on the tip of the iceberg because I am not an arborist, I am not a silviculturalist, um, but I play one on a podcast. <laughs> now really this, this was um, sparked by a question from Mark um, who has recently become a patron of the show. So 
Here's my little pitch, patreon.com slash lumber update if you're interested in sponsoring the show. It was interesting, Mark posed this question and I responded saying, good timing because I had already planned uh, this silvicultural systems episode at the beginning of December and he wrote to me somewhere around the end of December. So I, I wanted to read his, his email. Um, he also followed up with a story about uh, the impact of clear cutting in British Columbia on salmon streams and flooding, which plays to the point in the intro of the show about how silvicultural silviculture now needs to examine more than just lumber production, but the ecology surround it. So anyway, here's um, Mark's message. He said, I recently started listening to your podcast and I love it. I also recently watched the Netflix program, Big Timber, which you have mentioned a couple of times. I am a Canadian woodworker with strong environmental attitudes and I have a question about what you call, quote, sustainability. In particular, I challenge the notion that you can clear cut a forest that has taken hundreds or thousands of years to develop and claim that it is sustainable if you plant saplings to replace the trees that have been cut. A forest is a magically diverse ecosystem that cleans our air and water, contributes to fighting climate change and floods, provides medicine, habitat for countless fungi, insects and animal species, and many other benefits to society. Planting saplings for a monoculture forest in no way replaces the complex and diverse ecosystem that is ravaged when it has been clear-cut. The practices in big timber certainly do not look anything like low impact in my uneducated view. In fact, I doubt that what was cut down could ever be regenerated using our current logging practices. I understand that mankind needs forest products and therefore not every forest can be maintained in its pristine natural condition, but I also am concerned when we claim sustainability without referring to the damage that the forest industry inflicts on the biodiversity of our forest ecosystems. Am I missing something? And this is a great question and kind of at, at face value, this could be a bit of a can of worms uh, because anytime you start talking about forestry, you get these you know, political camps of environmentalists and, and industrialists butting heads with one another. And there is absolutely no doubt that in the past, forestry practices did not take a lot of this into consideration. There were so many trees and just acres and acres and acres of forest that nobody thought we would ever run out. And then even when they did think we would run out, there was the almighty dollar driving them. The fact of the matter is silviculture as a science has been around a while. And a lot of these systems that I'm going to talk about today started to be implemented and we thought we were doing things well, but the biologists and the ecologists were continually doing studies behind the scenes. And some studies have started to come out saying that this particularly, this particular silvicultural system in this particular area is not as good as we thought. And therefore we have to pivot and shift to another type of system. So the important part, Mark, for the environmentalist in you is recognizing that silvicultural systems being put into play like we see in the show Big Timber are very much in flux. And very much like crop rotation is a thing to maximize the yield of a particular crop, but also to, to pay attention to the soil chemistry and the health of the substrate, rotation of silvicultural systems constantly changing is incredibly important. But the other thing to think about when you think of clear cutting is the size of the clear cut and the overall ecological impact, not just of that clear cut, but the area around it. Um, Mark sent me this uh, additional article about how the the clear cutting in British Columbia has caused issues with um, flooding because there's there's no absorption of the water 
uh, as it's running down those hills and it's causing flooding in the streams, which is causing salmon uh, spawning habitat issues. There's undergrowth issues. There's insect and, and local uh, fauna issues that have had problems with these. And these are things that are coming to light and, and are becoming more and more aware of as scientists put out these studies. A silviculturalist is responsible for paying attention to these studies and, as I said before, pivoting to make sure that we're not adding bad, making bad go to worse. So let's talk about this. And, and Mark specifically brings up clear cutting. And let's kind of start with the overall view of silvicultural systems. Um, Silvicultural systems really, in most instances, they're characterized by the method of actually harvesting trees, but you also need to think beyond just how that individual tree is cut and more at what does the system promote. So there are, uh, what, six? No, actually four major silvicultural systems, but there are some kind of subgroups under that. So you could maybe make a case for six or maybe more than that. But the important thing is, is two major groups, one which would be focused on creating an equal age forest. So all the trees are about the same age and the others would be focused on uneven age. So you've got, you know, one-year-olds and 20-year-olds and, you know, 60-year-old trees, more of a diversity in age throughout the forest. So if we look at um, well, firstly, let's, let's name them. There is the selection system, shelterwood, seed tree, and clear cutting. Those are the four major systems. So if we look at the selection system, this is really involving uh, the removal of mature, but also some immature trees, either one at a time or in groups. Now, this removal is done at intervals, and those intervals could be two years, 20 years, et cetera. It's gonna be varied, dependent upon the species, dependent on the climate, et cetera, but there are, they are removed over these various intervals. The regeneration is established and it kind of continues going on all the time. So whether this is done by seeding or natural seeding, regeneration is constantly happening. The objective of the selection system is maintenance of that uneven age stand of trees. Trees of different ages or sizes are intermingled, um, maybe individually or in groups. When you properly apply this, it's a very aesthetically pleasing uh, system, but it can be difficult to apply successfully in a lot of forest types. So if we break down the selection system, there are two types. There is individual selection and group selection. Individual selection, as, as you might think, it involves removal of a single tree. Um, so you go into a stand of trees, you identify one tree, and you remove that. What this does is it leads to an increase in the proportion of shade-tolerant trees in the forest because removing that single tree is going to not really put that much more sunlight on the forest floor. The canopy is not going to be horribly uh, interrupted. So the tree that's going to grow up in the space of the tree you just removed needs to be able to deal with shade. And, you know, my horrible Getty Lee impression at the beginning of this, and thanks to the bard-like lyrics of the late, great, famous Neil Peart, you know, the maples were unhappy because they weren't getting the sunlight because the oaks were hogging it all. So you would select a single tree in order to promote more oak growth, um, 
I'm sorry, uh, opposite, in order to promote more maple growth in, in that particular song. This is not technically accurate from a silvicultural perspective. One could say that oaks and maples are somewhat equal in their shade and sun lovingness, although the oaks tend to be a little bit taller in some instances. But pardon me, uh, Neil, uh, I, I don't want to speak ill of you now that you've passed, but you guys get the point. Um, <laughs> the idea with the single tree selection is if I remove that tree, I can promote more trees growing in that area that are going to be okay living in the shade of the larger canopy that already exists. Now, group selection can be the opposite. You go in and the objective here is to maintain a higher proportion of less shade tolerant species um, in the mixture uh, than you would get in an individual selection. So you, you cut out a larger group exposing a lot of sunlight onto the forest floor. So what's going to grow there either through, you know, uh, seeding yourself or through natural seeding are the trees that are going to go fast and tall under that high amount of sunlight. So if you want to grow a forest for lumber production where you've got a whole bunch of oaks or even maples, sun-loving trees, you cut out groups in order to promote more of them. If that forest starts to get out of proportion, you got too many oaks and maples and you want some more cherries and, and birch and things like that, then you're going to, you're going to do more single selection in order to promote growth of those shade tolerant trees. Because that space where you just took out a tree is going to be in deep shade. No oak or maple is going to do well there. And the, the cherries and the birches and thing and walnuts are going to grow up in its place and kind of equal out a multi-species forest, a non-monocultural forest. Again, silviculture is examining for a specific reason. If you have a stand of trees that you are silviculturally managing and the objective of that management is to grow maples, you're going to apply a, a, a method of silviculture that will grow more maples. If that stand of maples is now, okay, there's too many maples or we're going to let this go back. We want to get away from the monoculture thing because we've determined that there's too much of a single uh, single species and it's starting to affect the wildlife, for example. And I'll get to that in just a second. It's starting to affect the wildlife. We need to introduce more species into this. You're going to change your silvicultural system in order to even out the proportion with some different species, which may bring different uh, animals back in and balance out the ecology of this. There's a good example of this in northern Michigan with the jack pine warbler, where the jack pine warbler was almost extinct. And um, the forests that were being managed at the time were being let to grow really, really tall. They weren't doing any clear cutting because it was determined that we wanted to grow. Um, basically, it was on the heels of, of kind of when the world grew an environmental conscience and said, we can't do a clear cutting anymore like we've done for years. So they stopped doing it and 20, 30 years went by and the jack pine warbler almost disappeared. And it was discovered, well, the jack pine warbler likes to breed in very short, uh, heavy undergrowth, short trees. Well, pine trees, specifically the jack pine, when it grows, um, it, it grows in very, very dense, dense clumps. Um, and as it's reseeded today, it's actually seeded using a broadcast spreader like you would use, you know, seeding your lawn or something like that. So you get these really densely clumped short trees under like three feet tall. That was the perfect breeding habitat for the jack pine warbler. When a softwood, specifically the jack pine, gets to be about three years old, it 
all of its lower branches die and they start to fall off. And what this nets in three years and older jack pine forests is very little undergrowth, very little protection for those nests that the jack pine warbler used to use. So as those forests got older and they weren't doing any more clear cutting, there wasn't any new growth because this was a, a monoculture forest that didn't allow sunlight to penetrate to the ground floor, the jack pine warbler lost its breeding habitat and the bird almost became extinct. Ecologists came in and said, ooh, here's the problem. They recognized this was the issue. They partnered with silviculturalists and the big timber producing companies up there and said, we can use these various selection systems or individual systems or even clear cutting systems, but we need to maintain a certain number of, of acres of clear cut under three, you know, under three year old trees for the jack pine wallaber to breed. And today it's like the most successful um what's the word, not repatriation, reintroduction of a species, I think in the history of the world. The jack pine warbler is, is no longer endangered. It's certainly not you know super, super prevalent. You gotta go right to that area in Michigan. Any birders listening to this, it's, you go up to, up to central Michigan and you can go on a birding tour and see the jack pine warbler. But they're incredibly proud of this because it was locking arms with the ornithologists, the ecologists, and the silviculturalists to come up with a solution that reintroduced this almost died off species, but then also provided uh, greater diversity in the forestry methods used up there. So when you look up in, in northern central Michigan now, you will actually see like stair-step regions where you've got three-year-old trees, you've got 20-year-old trees, you've got 10-year-old trees. And each one of those areas is in a certain phase of its regeneration or a certain phase of its life cycle. And it's really kind of cool to see silviculture being applied in such a specific way. So I'm going a little bit off topic, but it's important to, to back to the point that Mark was making about the impact on the flora and the fauna and the hydrological systems and the climatological systems, this is where silviculture gets really, really cool as you adapt and pivot based upon your findings of how things are impacting the environment. The environment is such a multivariate system, there's no way you possibly can predict what's gonna happen. If you make a change, like cut down a tree, you have an idea, you can make some best guesses, but you may not know the impact until 20 years later. If that impact is negative, then you don't do that again. You pivot and you change to another system. So individual selection and group selection, again, are focused on, and on maintaining that uneven age, that diversity in age in, in their uh, particular forest, particular stand, whatever area you're, you're talking about. The thing about group selection is it sounds a little bit like clear cutting. And in some ways it is, but it's micro clear cutting. So um, larger, the, the size of that group selection is gonna vary depending on where you are. Um, kind of Eastern forests, you're going to have, you know, groups that are a fraction of an acre in size, and that works pretty well. But in a lot of Western timber types and Western forests, these stands of trees are much more open. They're often very, very tall. So the groups there can be as large as an acre or two. That looks very much like a clear cut, but technically that is a group selection. When these group selections hit like a maximum size, they look like a clear cut. And the group selection system kind of is distinguished from clear cutting from the fact that the intent of the group selection is ultimately to create that balance of age or size kind of classes in, in a closer mixture. So in, in a 
set kind of soil chemistry, set watershed, set ecological system, you've got a, a more intimate mixture of trees and ages in that little area. <clears throat> I'll get to clear cutting a little bit to, to show that, uh, that differentiation. But the first thing I'll say is <clears throat> the remaining systems that I'm gonna talk about, these are all about promoting even age management. So that right there is the main difference between group selection and clear cutting. So let's talk about clear cutting. It's something that a lot of people know, you know, hear about, and it's an often vilified method of silviculture because it looks terrible. <laughs> clear cutting is you cut down all the trees in a specific area with the purpose of creating a new even age stand of trees. Now the area that you clear cut could be, you know, an acre, could be half an acre, it could be a strip, it could be various different sizes, and that's gonna really be based upon topological reasons, hydrological regions, flora and fauna, a lot of ecological reasons. The shape of that clear cut and the location of that clear cut is very much a part of that silvicultural system. It's not just random, in other words. So, um, you know, some of these can be mapped, you know, as a whole grid segment on a map, and others are barely even noticeable from the air. The regeneration on clear cutting is obtained through a mixture, it can be natural seeding, um, through the, the sprouting of trees that maybe were there kind of in the undergrowth, or can be actual um, inorganic seeding, going out with a broadcast spreader and throwing the seeds out there. Um, the whole overall system requires very careful location of the boundaries of the clear cut to fit the landscape, and all of the area within the clear cut needs to have a lot of cleanup. So. The difference between group selection where you cut down a couple of trees, you're not really doing anything to the undergrowth. But in clear cutting, you're going back to the dirt. You're getting as back to like open field as you can get to allow the growth of the trees in that particular system. And, and there's a, an immediate distinction between clear coat and, and group other than the fact that the even une, uneven aged object, you can see a group and think, oh, this could be a natural meadow. You see a clear cut and that's obviously man-made. But it is also that very obvious clearing of all the undergrowth and everything that makes clear cutting so amenable to kind of starting over, hitting a reset button and growing an equal stand of trees that maybe is particularly selected to that particular ecological cocktail. So um, back to, to British Columbia and a lot of areas of Canadian forests, Western red cedar has long been a, you know, hugely commercially viable species in high, high demand. Douglas fir has also been in strong demand for structural purposes like timber framing and just simple stud two-by type construction. So a lot of the clear cutting that's been happening up there has been to foster the growth of those two species. Well, very, very recently, actually, we've started to discover that the Douglas fir is starting to outperform and outpopulate the western red cedar. Douglas fir is just hardier. It tends to be liking the soil chemistry. It's it's liking the um, competitive nature of the clear cut early um, early years, and it's starting to to basically breed out the western red cedars. So a perfect example that's happening right now is a pivot in silvicultural systems in order to kind of homogenize those forests. Um, this is also translating downstream from an economic perspective as we're starting to see 
um, western red cedar, people are beginning to look for alternative species because they're recognizing the fact that the trees are, are not as available as they were before. Certainly, we've hit a point where silvicultural systems have shifted and the really, really old western red cedars aren't there. We may have to wait 10, 20 years for that you know, right generation of trees again. And in the meantime, other species need to happen and silvicultural systems will shift in order to foster the growth of those other species. But then we'll also begin to look at what are the ecological um climatological, hydrological uh, upshot of a greater percentage of Douglas fir in the forest as compared to western red cedar. And that may necessitate a further shift downstream as well. So while there are some that are already beginning to um, practice selection in order to add more western red to the forest over Douglas fir, there are others that are saying we want to sit and wait a little bit and see what this does. What are some of the longer term impacts of this? And it's happening, both situations are happening by design. Certain um, acreages have been set aside in order to let kind of the course continue and let Douglas fir predominate. Other courses have been set aside, other acres have been set aside in order to reintroduce more western red cedar. So th this is what silviculture is all about. It's constantly paying attention to and, re and, and reacting to what is happening uh, in the moment, but also what's happening over these long-term studies. So let's, let's continue. I got a little caught up in clear cutting, but it's, I think it's important because that's the one that a lot of people know about, but I think it's also the one that a lot of people misunderstand. It is a very viable silvicultural system. Um, there is no doubt that it was misused in the past, but anytime you see clear cutting today, I, I don't wanna say 100% is it being misused. I would be, closer to say there's a strong chance that it is absolutely thought of what's happening here and it's probably not um, causing ecological harm um, because of the fact that so much of the concessions, so much of the land is not privately owned. That land is in many instances government owned and the concession, the right to harvest that requires a strong concession plan and silvicultural plan. So if clear cutting happening, you can be willing to bet there have been ecological studies that say this is going to be okay. In fact, this is the preferred method for the health of this particular biome. Carrying on. Um, moving on from clear cutting, uh, the shelterwood system is where you have a uh, mature group or stand of trees, and mature trees are removed from that stand over a series of cuts. The regeneration of a new stand occurs under the shelter, under the cover of that partial forest canopy. This is why it's called shelter wood. Um, a final harvest cut comes in and removes the shelter wood, which permits that new growth to develop in the open as an even-aged stand. So this happens over time. You've got a, a, a mature forest, say all the trees are 40 feet tall. You come in and you remove, let's just say there's 100 40 foot trees. You come in and you remove 25 of those 100 foot trees. That puts a spot in the canopy to allow new growth to begin in those 25 spots around the forest. Another 10 years comes around and another 25 of those mature trees are removed, opening up 25 more slots, if you will. It's not quite that cut and dried, forgive the lumber pun, but 25 more slots of younger trees start to grow up there as well. This continues to the point where eventually those last 
you know, mature uh, original 40-foot trees are cut down, and what's left is a bunch of 20-foot trees uh, underneath. Mature trees that have been sheltered by those 40-footers and allowed to get through their awkward adolescent years, allowed to go through puberty, and then set out on their own when they're old enough to vote. <laughs> and, and now, finally, the 40-footers are cut away. So it's a very... Um, it's a gradual system. And granted, the trees are not all exactly the same age, but they're close enough. And if you look at the growth of a tree, you know, there's a lot happening right up front. Once a tree gets to a certain age, the growth slows down pretty dramatically because there's obviously a lot more tree to nurture, just like humans, right? You know, we have that growth spurt and then you kind of stay the same, <laughs> same height and, and, and body shape for a while. And maybe you start to shrink as you get really, really old, but really you hit that, you hit that growth spurt and you kind of stop. Trees are very much the same in that respect where they're, they're really not getting that much bigger. So those 40 foot trees, pretty much stay 40 feet from the first cutting all the way to that final cutting. Maybe they grew an inch or something like that, but there's not a massive difference there. Shelterwood capitalizes on the shelter by those mature trees, allowing the little guys to grow up underneath that shelter. Um, it is really well adapted to um, species or sites where shelter is needed for new reproduction. This could be certain climate areas, could be certain species. Um, the shelterwood gives that desired regeneration uh, as an advantage over undesired competing vegetation, whatever that may be. Could be a specific species of tree, could be hedges and things like that. Uh, here again, in, in some ways, that jack pine warbler story is an example where the shelterwood of those low um, clumped jack pines provided the shelter for the local fauna to continue to breed. So here again, we're talking about shelterwood in terms of lumber production, but you can also think of shelterwood in terms of the flora and fauna that's not meant for lumber as well. Moving on to the seed tree system, involves basically harvesting nearly all of the trees on a selected area in one cut. A few of the better trees of that desired species are left, um, but they're distributed over that area and they reseed the blank areas naturally. So when this is feasible, the, the seed trees are harvested after that regeneration is established. So this is similar to shelter wood in the fact that you're, you are allowing the mature trees to do the reseeding for you and they're providing a little bit of shelter. This is something that is used a lot in well-established forests where you find this in the in the tropics where you go in and cut down a piece of, of mahogany and that mahogany tree must have a certain number of seed trees that will reseed the area that you're moving that tree out so the reseeding of it is all done naturally and the forest selects itself um, this can, dependent upon the forest, it can perpetuate a monoculture if that exists naturally, or it can also perpetuate the diversity that may exist already because you're letting those seed trees around essentially the drip line of a tree. If you look at a tree, there's the, the, the central trunk and then the, the branches branch out and you got the canopy. The canopy extends, extends to say a certain diameter around that trunk. That is the feed line or the drip line of the tree. And in most instances, the roots of that tree extend to that drip line or feed line. You wanna have seed trees that are gonna be dropping seeds inside the diameter of the, the 
the seed line or drip line of the tree you just removed. And that's kind of the, the brilliance of seed tree is its regeneration is constantly happening and it's happening on a natural basis. But here again, this is going to uh, be especially important for trees that can handle a certain amount of shade. Again, it depends upon the species. You know, you take down a mahogany, they have a huge canopy. They're gonna open quite a bit of sunlight on the, on the ground floor. So that can produce a different tree as something in like a maple or oak forest where they're already dense and, and packed in tightly and there may not be quite as much sun that comes down. This sounds like it should produce um, an uneven growth, but here again, what we're doing is removing in stages, we're removing enough trees that we are growing a substantial percentage of the new forest is all the same age. And eventually those older trees that, are, that did the seeding are removed and cut down all at once. What's leaving behind the, you know, the 18 year old trees. I'm saying 18 year olds in the terms of human years, you know, able to vote age trees that finally grew up. So technically there's, there's different age trees going on, but the cutting is all done of the same tree in order to um, uh, propagate similar growth. Um, so yeah, shelter wood, seed tree, and clear cutting, that's all about same growth. Clear cutting makes a little bit more sense on same growth, but it's funny, you can look at a clear cut and sometimes you'll see a single tree. Like there'll be a couple acres of clear cut and there's one mature tree in the middle of it. Now in some instances, like you run into this in British Columbia where there are certain trees that are protected based upon their age. So the entire uh, acreage is clear cut, but there's maybe two trees of that age of that protected status. Those trees are left. Um, they're mature enough that they're gonna be just fine, you know, without um, the competition with the sunlight and all that because they're getting all the sunlight anyway. Those trees then also can be used as kind of a control. As I said, you know, once a tree gets to a certain age, it's not really growing that much taller, that much faster. So that one tree that's left, or those three trees that are left in that clear cut, can be used as a, as a gauge. So as the newer growth grows up and it gets to half the height of the other tree, you have an immediate kind of reference point where, okay, let's let them grow another 10 feet and then they'll be mature enough to cut down. Um, or you could also have a bit of a changing of the guard where some of these new growth trees, some of them, one or two of them could do really, really well. And they're going to take over that kind of giant of the forest role because really once a tree does get to a certain age, with the exception of like the thousand year old sequoias, trees do have a lifespan. When they get really, really old, they tend to fall down on their own. Again, highly variable based upon the species. So that it will explain because if you do like a Google search for clear cutting, you'll often see that single tree sitting in the middle of a bunch of clear-cut land, and that's really what that's about. It's, it's a gauge to determine the approximate age of the new growth as compared to what a mature tree in this particular region, this particular valley, this particular hydrological system should look like. If you remove that and you think about the lifespan of trees, you know, the silviculturists who oversaw the clear cutting may not be in that job 40 years from now. He might not even be alive 40 years from now. So that one tree left is, you know, incontrovertible evidence of what a tree can look like when it's grown to full maturity in that particular region. And I keep coming, referring to this particular region. It's important to understand that that can be, you know, as small as your backyard. It can be as large as, you know, 3,000 acres. Um, silviculturalists need to think on all of those terms. And this is why at the very beginning of the show, I talked about how the 
the definition really needs to shift to not just be talking about timber production. Because in recent years, we've realized that forests are good for recreation. Forests are a good place to go for a hike. Forests can get protected um, for national parks. But then there's also um, uh, wildfires, but then controlled burns as well. Things like that, that that manage these forests. So we need to we, we're not civil culturalists. Maybe there's some listening. If you are, please chime in. But the civil culturalist needs to not only think about timber production, but what are the reproductive habits um, and the requirements of the desired mix of trees? You know, who are who are the, the alphas? Who are the betas? Who are the, the, the young upstarts? And what are their habits? How do they best propagate? Do they need help with, you know, man coming in and reseeding? Or can they naturally recede on your own? That needs to be thought about. The requirements of the wildlife, the foxes and the deer and the squirrels um, in that area, and the salmon in the in the river at the bottom of the hill, what do they require of this particular ecological unit of this forest? What kind of hydrological impact will there be if all the trees are cut down, etc.? The hazards created on that forest by insects and disease. There are some instances where thousand canker or uh, the, the the chestnut blight. Uh, required the removal of a bunch of trees to prevent the entire forest from being taken out. Um, the other thing to consider is the use of fire in forest culture, um, both planned and unplanned. And what's that going to do to the regrowth? There are certain trees that do really, really well with fire. Um, conifers that are designed to open their cones and drop the seeds in the case of a fire so that those trees really dominate the post-fire landscape. This needs to be, the silvicultural impact of that needs to be considered. There's other instances where a fire can almost burnish the, the forest floor so that water is not absorbed and it sluices right off like a dry creek bed, which can cause hydrological damage down downhill from there. So fire, unplanned and planned, needs to be considered from a silvicultural system implementation. Various climate hazards that come into play, um, heavy frost near the ground level or um, how that's going to affect a certain seedling. So what happens over the course of a year in this particular region and how does the specific silvicultural system we choose going to augment that or fly in the face of that? Another thing we need to think about is the size, age, and the, the, just the, the healthiness of the trees in the existing stand. Um, production, uh, a forest that's designed for producing lumber um, is primarily mature trees. You know, you're not getting a, a lumber out of, a, of an immature tree. So as those trees get older, I talked about before, they don't just grow forever. As they get older, they decline quickly. Um, and uh, a harvest may need to be forced upon the situation because if the tree falls over on its own and begins to rot, it's not going to be a good lumber-producing tree. So you have to pay attention to those giants of the forest, but also recognize when their time has come. And if I remove that giant of the forest, essentially removing the shelter tree in the shelter wood system, a new silvicultural system needs to be brought into place because those, the age of those trees... Here's another example. Say you've got a bunch of really mature trees and you're going to do, um, we're going to use um, uh, shelter wood. And that shelter wood cycle is going to be done over the course of every 10 years, there's going to be a cut. Well, if at the beginning of that, you cut down some trees, but say 40 years from now, when you finish your final cut, those mature trees that you started with 
probably will have fallen over, will have died of their own accord, leaving no shelter for that final um, final iteration of new seedlings. So this is the silvicultural system actually needs to be paused and pivoted in mid-cycle. You know, you plan for four shelterwood cuts, but you're actually not going to make it to the fourth because the trees are too old and they've got to be removed beforehand. So you have to think about that at the beginning as much as you can, but also recognize that um, you may have to pivot and change midway through because of that. Um, the other thing that more recently has started to come in is the use of genetically improved trees. Um, this is something that, well, I mean, the whole genetics thing is something that gets a lot of people, gets their ire up because that is not a, a natural thing. The, re, the reintroduction of the chestnut and specifically chestnut trees that are resistant to the chestnut blight. Well, the chestnut dominated the forest before the blight came along. What would happen if you put that, you know, alpha species back into play and it didn't have to worry about the chestnut blight anymore? What would that do to the forest that exists now? Because the forest that exists now have been getting along just fine without the chestnut for, what, 50 years? Actually, it's been longer than that. Whatever. A long time. There have been trees that have been born and grown up into mature trees um, since the chestnut has been gone. So there's a lot of people who are really, really concerned about reintroducing a genetically improved tree that has been essentially, to quote Darwin, selected for extinction. Um, something to, to really, really think about. And you can imagine it kind of makes your head swim with the number of things that need to be considered as a silviculturalist. And fortunately, you get to focus on one particular area. You're a silviculturist working for, say, Weyerhaeuser, Weyerhaeuser has three concessions in a particular region of, say, British Columbia or in Michigan, and you're responsible for one of those concessions. Maybe you have more than one concession, but each one of those has to be considered individually. And then what's going to happen to the surrounding concessions and how will that impact everything? So there's constant study, constant evaluation of what is the current silvicultural system doing and could there be a better solution here? And the better solution is dependent upon the end goal. Are we trying to grow lumber trees? Are we trying to uh, return the forest to a, a diverse multi-species forest, et cetera, et cetera? There is actually um, a phenomenal PDF. Uh, shoot, I can't remember who wrote it, who put it together. I think it's just the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, I'll have to dig around and find it and see if I can include a copy here. But it um, it, it gives an overview of silvicultural systems, but it goes into great detail over different forest types. So it looks at Western forest types and it goes into detail about specifically the Pacific Douglas fir, the, the hemlocks, the, the Northwestern ponderosa pine. And it looks at each one of those species and each one of those ecological systems and what silvicultural systems have worked, where they have changed in the past, what they need from a reproduction perspective. All of that stuff comes into play heavily with um, as a silviculturist and determining what's best for that environment. I bring that up just because going back to the opening of the show and my horrible Getty Lee impression, let's face it, the man's voice just gets higher the older he gets, but Neil Peart's lyrics say that the maples were unhappy because the oaks were hogging all the sunlight. You know, the maples cry oppression and the oaks just shake their heads. Technically, if you look at northern hardwoods, um, uh, northern eastern hardwoods, where a lot of the oaks and the maples are prevalent, they are actually viewed, oaks and maples are actually viewed on equal footing as far as um, what kind of shade tolerance or intolerance they have. 
And in other words, they're not often competing with one another. What you find is in the oaks and the maples end up being the oppressor in using Neil Peart's terms. And it's the birches and the beeches and the cherries and the walnuts that are screaming oppression. So there we go. I'm contradicting one of my favorite musicians, but it is what it is, folks. Silviculture is a fascinating body of science. It is something that is so intricate that I encourage you when you see something and you think that's bad forestry practice or that's wrong, dig a little deeper. You might be right. Maybe it's somebody who's not paying close attention, but I have a hard time finding that to be the case. Certainly there's private land that they can do whatever they want on it, but the court of public opinion will probably take care of them in the long run. Most forest is in public land. And you gotta have a silvicultural perspective and a silviculturalist on staff in order to manage that land, in order to harvest that land. So something to think about in reference to Mark's question, you know, the practice of being shown in big timber, when you look at the size of that concession that they were logging on, it's really not that big. The clear cutting that they did um, could be walked across very, very quickly. Well, maybe not with all the stumps and such. So how will that impact the hydrological systems downhill from that? It's hard to say, you know, over that small area. And is the location of that particular clear cut been chosen because it isn't in a gully? Maybe it's on the crest of, of, of a rolling hill and it's not going to affect the groundwater runoff as much. I don't know. But here again, something to seriously think about and consider all the sides here. There's going to be people doing it incorrectly, but the the incidences of that happening in this day and age are much, much less. I'd like to think that we as a people have learned from our past mistakes and the over-harvesting and the misuse and the misunderstanding of forest ecology, it's not really a thing anymore. And if you're going to manage a concession, you've got a civil culturalist who is holding you to task and making sure you're doing it right. So please, folks, let me know if you have questions about this, about any of the silvicultural systems, or maybe you've got specific examples in your neck of the woods and are wondering what's being employed there. Um, again, I'm not the expert in this case. I just play one on a podcast, but I'm happy to hear specific information and we can talk about it. Thanks for listening, everybody, and uh, go buy some hardwoods. <laughs>